Thank you. You may be seated. What do you fear most? It's always a fun way to start a conversation at a party. You should try it sometime. <laughs> hey, my name is Matt. I'm Fred. Oh, what are you afraid of? Whoa. <laughs> Actually, if you can go there with people, it is kind of an interesting conversation. Like, what are you, what are you afraid of the most? Uh, people talk about this. Uh, there are actually, in this um, studied world in which we live, people that track this kind of thing, probably not surprisingly. Uh, there's a college in California called Chapman University. I only know about it because I discovered an annual survey that they do studying Americans' greatest fears. And they've done this for several years now, so they can actually start to track not only what Americans say, you know, they do these scientific surveys and whatever, what Americans say they're most afraid of, but like how that's changing over time. Um, some of the usual suspects end up on the list. When I um, published, saw, saw their published full list, you can Google that. It's interesting reading. Uh, some of the usual suspects made it on the list. You know, snakes, spiders, um, drowning. <laughs> I mean, some of the public speaking, obviously not an issue for all of us, but um, some of the usual suspects are on the list. But you know what was number one on the list? Actually, miles and miles ahead of some of those things. I thought that was going to be the stuff at the top of the list. It's on there, but they were all pretty far down there. What was miles ahead of the list for 2018, last year, the number one fear that Americans have, almost 75%, three quarters, that's stunning, said they were either afraid or very afraid of government corruption. It's huge. Government corruption. The authors of the study noted that that's been on the top of the list for three or four years, but it's increasing. So it used to be more like 60 or 65% of people were afraid of it. Now it's like 75% of people are afraid of people in power using it wrongly and what that's going to do to us and the world in which we live. They basically summarized then the top 10 of the other fears. If you take that uh, fear of government corruption and set it aside, they, they said you can summarize the, the rest of the top 10 under three headings. First, Americans are fearful of things related to the environment. Secondly, we're fearful of something bad happening to loved ones. Lots of fears related to that. And then lastly, uh, a, a whole cluster of fears around the subject of money, and, and most particularly whether we're going to have enough in the future. Now, there's a couple of other trends that, are no, that uh, they pointed out. Because they've done the survey for a few years, Americans are actually becoming more fearful as time goes on. So that's interesting. Not only do the, the list of what Americans say from year to year we uh, are afraid of, not only is that list you know, kind of changing a little bit, but more people are reporting being more afraid about some of the same things. So overall, they're like, we can see the numbers just going up. We, we look like we're becoming an increasingly fearful and anxious people as time goes on. And one other trend they noted, um, interestingly, they said there is a very strong and undeniable correlation between watching television, especially talk shows, and anxiety. Now, in their sort of like, you know, scientific way, they're like, we can't prove whether that's like TV is causing us to be fearful or if just more fearful people watch TV, like we don't know. But the connection was so undeniable, they just put that out there right up front. Now, it's interesting that from the perspective of, of the Bible, we may be on to something when we fear how those in power will use it. We may actually be on to something there. Um, but perhaps it's our penchant for 
television and radio talk shows, uh, and maybe social media to some extent too, that directs a lot of our fearful focus in the, in the direction of Capitol Hill and Pennsylvania Avenue these days. But if we were to tune into God's talk show, if you'll pardon me for calling the Bible that, <laughs> it's not actually a show, but God does talk an awful lot in this book. He's given us a lot of words. And if we kind of tune into God's talk, we might actually find um, that our fear is maybe moving in the right direction, although our eyes would be lifted higher than Pennsylvania Avenue. Or as the great uh, American theologian of a couple hundred years ago, Jonathan Edwards, so famously put it, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This morning we're in week two of a five-Sunday look at the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Uh, we introduced this last week um, and described its importance to us. We're calling the, the series A Voice for Sorrow because that's what lament is. And, and we talked last Sunday about how important lament is in the Christian life and how much of the Bible is given over to it. Although in our modern American culture, we don't really find a whole lot of space for it or help with it. And so there's a lot here for us potentially to learn. We saw how um, lament is giving a voice to sorrow. It's grieving out loud before God. That's how the Bible sort of defines it. And, and the reason that we're doing this series is because it helps us as Christians face difficulty and grief well. First of all, it just validates the fact that there often is grief and difficulty, and then secondly, helps us experience them well. But, but lastly, it helps us help others experience it well. And so we spent a good, time, uh, a good deal of time last week talking about how even if, even if we're not right now in a place of real significant pain and suffering, people right around us in our church family are. And so we need to be good lamenters, not only for our own sake, because if we're not grieving something right now, your time's probably coming. <laughs> but not only that, it's not just about us, it's about how we can be the body of Christ that helps one another grieve well. There's so many rich resources here. We also talked a lot about how we kind of need this help. We need this help because our modern American culture, with its sort of distinctively American can-do optimism, is really good for a lot of things, but it's not good for this. It just doesn't really set us up to lament or help other people lament well when it's needed. And so this book consists of five poems of lament, one for each chapter, and they are very carefully constructed. And we actually went through how carefully put together these poems are and how all five of them fit together last Sunday. And it's there you get the major lessons of the book for modern American Christians today. And there are four of them we covered last week. I don't have the time to recap all of them. But friends, if you were not here last Sunday and you haven't yet done so, whoa, there's my point of emphasis. Um, if you have not yet done so, please get on our website at harvestcc.org. Listen to the sermon. The audio recording is up there from last Sunday because we laid out how these poems are structured and what the lessons are for us today. And it's an essential to us understanding uh, how these poems work. Now today, we're going to look at chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, please open them if you haven't already to Lamentations chapter 2. This is the one poem... I try to make sure that doesn't do that again, if I can control it. This is the one poem that coming into this series, I had the most questions about. I'm like, God, how do you preach this? Because it is, of the five, the darkest of all five lament poems. And we'll see why here in just a minute. Um, it's the darkest for a couple of significant reasons. Now, the most hopeful of the five lament poems is the third one. We'll see that next Sunday. 
So if you're depressed when you leave the door, just please come back because it'll get better, okay? I feel like I want to say that. <laughs> uh, but actually, I don't think we're going to be depressed, but we want to be honest about the fact that this is, this is a dark and a heavy chapter in the Bible, and it comes right before the most hopeful one, which is deliberate. We'll actually get to that next Sunday. This poem describes Jerusalem's destruction, not at the hands of the Babylonian armies, that's the historical setting we talked about last week, not at the hands of the Babylonian armies, but at the hands of God. In this poem, God is the actor, the initiator of chaos and calamity and suffering for his people, which is intense. It's an intense poem. There's uh, three kind of voices in this poem, and, and what they lead us to is a, a picture that it doesn't, you don't read this chapter and end up feeling happy at the end of it. You, you just don't. Like, this is not a feel-good chapter of Scripture. Now, what it does do for us, if we let it, is it gives us really powerful, rich, and deep resources for dealing with pain and grief. So this chapter has the potential to be powerfully healing for us, but it's not a short-term create happy feelings chapter. And one of the things as Americans is it helps us to learn to distinguish the two because our culture kind of has a love affair, if I could put it that way, with feeling good all the time. And the Bible gives us a deeper view of human experience than that. There's three voices in this poem that are really just going to kind of be the three points of the sermon. It starts out with the, the third person. The poet, likely the prophet Jeremiah, is speaking as a third person narrator. And he just describes for the first 10 of the verses, 22 po uh, the poem's 22 verses, for the first 10 of them, he's describing the destruction of Jerusalem from the perspective of a third person narrator. The second voice becomes a first person voice where for the first time Jeremiah speaks not as an impartial observer, but an experiencer. He goes first person singular and he talks about his personal response and reaction to God based on what he just saw. And then the last voice in the final couple of verses is actually ambiguous. We're not really sure who's speaking, whether it's the narrator or Jerusalem, and that ambiguity is deliberate. It points us beyond the poem itself. So that's where we're headed this morning. With that in mind, let's take a look at this poem of lament to see what God has for us in it. As we mentioned, the first 10 verses are the, the third-person uh, narrator version of, of uh, a description of Jerusalem's destruction. God is the actor, and you can see right away in verse 1, he is the one who is raining down destruction on Jerusalem. These verses sort of move poetically from heaven, where it starts out by saying, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion, another name for Jerusalem or the Israelites, under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. So it starts in heaven. God's judgment is pictured as a massive storm cloud rolling over Jerusalem and then just hailing and thundering and lightning God's judgment down from the heavens. And then it moves from the heavens down into casting God for the next several verses in the, the, the place of the invading Babylonian armies who were the ones that actually destroyed Jerusalem historically. But this poem casts God in that role. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah and brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn, them from his, from, withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. 
He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up its palaces. He has laid it in, ru- laid in ruins all its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his own tent or booth like a garden, laid, its, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, He has delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on a day of festival. These verses describe God as the one doing the invading. Uh, It's it's God, in verse 2, who broke down the walls and undid the kingdom, not the Babylonians. It's God, in verse 3, who burned the city, not the torches of the Babylonians. It was the torch, poetically, of God's anger. It was God, in verse 4, who strung his bow and shot the arrows that killed the Israelite soldiers and innocent civilians. It was God himself, says this poem. This is almost shocking. This is in the Bible. It is God, verse 5 says, and 4 as well, it just comes right on and says that God is like an enemy. He used to be our God, our defender. It was his right hand in the language of the Old Testament that used to protect us, but he's now withdrawn it. So yes, it's the armies that destroyed us, but see, that's actually really God. And he is the one in verses 6 and 7 who destroyed his own temple, Solomon's glorious temple that God's own presence filled the blessed place where God's people could worship him and hear from him and be close to him. His presence is left, and God himself has annihilated the building, broken it down, and kicked it away like a footstool that he no longer wants. And then the last movement of these verses, we've moved from heaven to the invading armies, and now in verses 8 through 10, the the battle is over, and all that's left is the quiet devastation after the armies are gone, with the piles of rubble and the smoke burning and rising to the heavens. Verse 8, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion, He stretched out the measuring line and did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament, and they languished together. Her gates, referring to the city, have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. You can just see the picture of him looking around the destroyed city and describing what he sees. The king and the princes are among the nations. They're not here anymore. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. And the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. In these final verses, he surveys the wreckage and says that this is the handiwork of God. He is the one who broke down the ramparts. He is the one who smashed the gates. He is the one who exiled the leaders. He looks around and there's, there's nobody giving orders to the people because all the kings and princes are either dead or they've been hauled off to Babylon as exiles. They're gone. He is the one who is responsible for the fact that the prophets don't speak anymore. He's not giving them any words to say. The law of God is gone. The temple's been destroyed. The writings are, are nowhere to be found. People don't know what God wants anymore. He is the one who's taken it all away. 
And in verse 10, we see a picture of the people who are left in a state, in the language of the day, a state of abject mourning. Those who are surviving are just sitting silently, old men, young women alike, sitting silently in the street with dust on their heads. That's just a a way that they would say that they are in total mourning and lament, total silence, heads bowed down to the ground. It's a dark and intense poem in the Bible. And it gets more intense when you realize the language used, especially the language of God's anger. Did you pick that up as we went through these verses? God's anger. In verse 1, it says that in anger, the Lord has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. And it refers to this as the day of his anger. In verse 2, he refers specifically to God's wrath. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds. Verse 3, he has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. God is not a dispassionate actor in this case. Verse 4, God has acted in his fury, which burns like a fire. And then in verse 6, the Lord has destroyed his temple in his fierce indignation. Indignation is a potent word. It's one part offense and one part anger. I'm so offended at what I'm seeing. I'm mad about it. That's indignation. When God is looking at the sin of his people, he is so offended, he is finally angry. And this points to what theologians refer to as the wrath of God. The Bible often calls it that as well. It is an intense and just anger from God against sin that leads to judgment. That's what God's wrath is. That's what's being depicted here in this poem. It's worth pointing out that we, in modern America, very rarely use the word wrath, and if we do, it's like really bad. I mean, we would only say, use the word wrath of another person if their anger was so bad it was completely out of control and it was destroying them and leading them to destroy everybody else around them. And that is one distinction in the Bible. God, when it uses this term wrath, is never out of control. God experiences, as we have seen here, intense emotions, both positive and negative ones. But he is never out of control. He is always just, the Bible insists, in his anger, and he is always in control. But nevertheless, God does have just wrath, according to the Bible, against human sin. That's not all of his character. You may remember back in Exodus chapter 34, God very famously gives the people salvation and he leads them out of Egypt and he gives them a whole new covenant. He says, I'm going to take you to a promised land. And before the ink of their covenant is even dry, so to speak, the people are down at the foot of the mountain while Moses is up there meeting with God and they're building a golden calf and worshiping an idol. And God says to Moses, this people's not going to stay faithful to me. I should wipe them out. And Moses says, no, please don't. And God says, okay, I won't because I'm going to tell you who I am, Moses. And in Exodus chapter 34, he lets his glory pass by. Moses and he announces his character and he says I am the Lord I am full of mercy I am full of loving kindness and he specifically says I am slow to anger and he had been slow to anger Israel entered into that covenant with God in which he spelled out the consequences of failure everything that happens in lamentations had been told to the people ahead of time would happen if they broke the covenant. They said, great, we're all in. And then they broke the covenant. And then they did it again and again and again. And God forgave them again and again and again. Hundreds of times, over hundreds of years, God restrained the full judgment he promised his people to the point that the people actually became complacent and they felt like we're violating the covenant and we're still here. Like God's never going to judge us. We're really okay. 
And in the destruction of Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations, we have a picture that God is slow to anger, but he does get there. He does get there. It's worth asking at this point with this terrifying picture of God as the instigator of pain and suffering, a question that may be on your mind. Perhaps it's there and you want to ask it. Perhaps it's deep down inside and you're trying to deny it. But let me just put it out there. Is this angry God a monster? The poem almost begs us to ask that question. This wasn't the Babylonians' fault. Ultimately, this is God doing this to us. Is God a monster? I came across a meme on the internet because in the Instagram generation, that's apparently how we communicate with people these days. Picture, catchy quote, Snapchat, done. I don't have to say anything else. The meme is a picture of Jesus knocking on a door. And he's saying, let me in. And the voice from inside says, why should I let you in? Maybe you've seen this or something like it. And he says, because I want to save you. And the voice from inside says, what do you want to save me from? And the punchline of the meme is Jesus saying, I want to save you from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. Right? It's designed to make Jesus look bad. It's designed to make the gospel of Christ look bad because that's exactly how a lot of people feel about God and about the Bible and about Christianity. Jesus wants to save us, and we Christians are running around saying, isn't that great news? Save us from what? From the wrath of God. Well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was God. Well, yeah, he is. Well, <laughs> you know, it sort of presumes innocence, that, that I shouldn't be judged, and God is just this tyrant, and, and there's no goodness there. God is a monster. The fact that he wants me to save me from himself doesn't change that, right? That's, that's what a lot of us think. And friends, if that's you, let me just encourage you that it may be worth considering that although this is a frightful picture of God, we'll get back to that in just a second. Just before we do, I want to say that God might actually be far less of a monster than he appears precisely because of his anger. But let me put it in another way. God might be more of a monster if he never gets angry because the world is full of stuff that we should be angry about. If God, knowing everything he does, could look, which is everything, could look at human sin, human suffering, human evil, and not be angry about it, how do you make peace with evil? I mean, if God could look at people abusing one another, raping women, abusing children, and kind of go, well, that's just the way the world is. I'm just going to keep loving people, and hopefully they'll kind of straighten up and fly right eventually. Eh. How do you just shrug in the face of evil? You have to be a horrible monster to do that. Yes, God says, I'm slow to anger, but it is just, the Bible insists, and right that he become angry with sin that is not repented from. But really, what's often at the, the root of that question, maybe not for you, but I think for a lot of people, is God a monster, is the real question of not just will God judge evil and sin in general, because if we think about it, all of us want God to judge somebody. We all think there's somebody out there who should get their comeuppance. It's just very rarely us. The real question is, is God going to judge me like this? Like when I'm reading this poem, am I supposed to see myself there? Is this how God is oriented toward me right now? He's a cosmic tyrant just getting ready to unleash his arrows and shoot him straight through my heart and cut me down in the street. It's worth noting that this role of God as the judge of his unrepentant people occurs within the Bible's larger story. And in that story, the destruction of Jerusalem here is what theologians call a type that is a foreshadowing of the final judgment that the Bible says will come at the end of time. God is slow to anger, but he will 
get there. In the New Testament book of 2 Peter, the Bible puts it this way. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. After having talked about how much evil God lets go unpunished, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord a a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. In other words, God doesn't count slowness. He's not slow to fill his promise as some count slowness. But what he is is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God's deepest hope is that nobody would ultimately have to experience his wrath and have the destruction of judgment of sin be the final chapter of their story. And that's why he delays. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That means when you're not expecting it. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved, and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. God will bring judgment. He is so slow to anger that many doubt he'll ever get there. But the destruction of Jerusalem reminds us, it's a picture, it's a warning to say, God will eventually get there. Friends, it's with a heavy heart, I say that. But as a proclaimer of the truths in the Bible, I have to be a herald of judgment at times because that's who we are as Christians. God told us, this is the judgment that is coming from which I yearn to save you. Romans chapter 2 encourages us not to presume upon God's kindness in not judging. It says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, there's our word again, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's the New Testament. The Bible's message is consistent. Friends, God's judgment on unrepentant sin will come. I don't know when, but it will come. That much he's made clear. What must we do to be saved? Friends, we saw the word there twice. Repent. Repent. If you're here this morning and you're not really sure what a relationship with God is about or Christianity is about, or maybe you are here and you've been in church for a long time and you've kind of done the church thing maybe all your life, but you're not really sure you can point to repentance in your life. Where did I turn away from my sin and turn in complete faith and dependence toward God? And friends, let me urge you to have that conversation out with God and with another person if it's helpful. What does it mean to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? That's the way the Apostle Peter described repentance in Acts chapter 2. We'd be delighted to talk with you about that. Myself, after the service, any of our ministry staff or elders, perhaps you came to church with another Christian that you feel more comfortable with because you know them better. Ask them about it. What does repentance look like? They will be happy to let you know how that worked for them. Even so, even knowing God's judgment is coming, and even if we grant, which some of us may not be ready to, I don't know, that it's just, this is not the end of the poem. Because seeing God's anger at his people's sin is still deeply unsettling. And as it turns out, God is not the only one who's angry in this poem. The poet himself is also quite angry. As we move on, to read uh, verse 11, the voice 
shifts, starting in verse 11. The poet says, my eyes are spent, and right there we see a sudden change of the voice. It's no longer third person, now it's, it's first person. The poet, Jeremiah, has now inserted himself into the story. He's not just describing it for us. He's now identifying with it. He's experiencing it, and he's going to tell us what he's feeling about the destruction that he just witnessed and described that God is pouring out in his own people, and he's not feeling good about it. He's letting God know, I'm not okay with this. And in many ways, these are verses of protest. God, how can you be okay with this? That's in the Bible too. Let's read verse 11. My eyes are spent, he says, with weeping. My stomach churns and my bile is poured out onto the ground. You see the graphic vividness of this? He's like, I am so racked at what I'm seeing. I want to throw up. That's how offended he is at the picture that he just narrated for us. Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city, he's saying, that's not right. That's horrible. They cry out to their mothers, where is bread and wine? Which is how they would have said back then, just kind of like, where's where's food, the stuff of life? But they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city and their life is poured out on their mother's bosom or in their mother's arms. When children are starving because of this, he's crying out, God, this is not right. He's he's indignant at what's happening. And, And we saw indignation already in this poem, didn't we? God is indignant at his people's sin. And now the poet Jeremiah is indignant at God's judgment. Interesting. Verse 13, he says, the pain is almost too big to heal. What can I say for you? He's now speaking to Jerusalem. To what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you to that I might comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Oh, this is no rough patch you're going through. This is like serious pain. I don't see a way out of this. This is a a fatal wound, one that can't be healed. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but they've seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. In the next two verses, he says there's salt in the wounds. As if our suffering isn't bad enough, people who hate us are celebrating it. It's just like rubbing salt in the wounds. Verse 15, all who pass by on the way clap their hands at you and they hiss and wag their heads. Remember that phrase, we'll come back to it in a few minutes. At the daughter of Jerusalem, Is this the city that was called the the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth? A quote, by the way, from Psalm 48 and another one from Psalm 50, where the Bible says that Jerusalem is the joy of the whole earth and the perfection of beauty because God has so richly blessed it. And now the nations surrounding are saying, is that the joy of, of of the earth and the perfection of beauty? It's a wasteland and they're celebrating because they hated the Israelites. All your enemies rail against you and hiss and gnash their teeth and cry, we have swallowed her. Ah! This is the day we have longed for. Now at last we see it. It's bad enough to suffer that somebody else would enjoy the suffering. Just heaps salt into the wound. In verse 17, once again you see his indignation. The Lord has done what he purposed. He's carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He is thrown down without pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Yes, he acknowledges we knew this was coming, and yet still... He's crying out to God. Verse 18, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let the tears stream down like a torrent day and night. And so here he just calls out, I'm crying out to God. He tells everybody in Israel that's left alive, you cry out to God too. 
Let the tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest and your eyes no respite. Arise and cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. The shift in the poem is significant because the poet suddenly enters into the story for the first time. We haven't seen that yet. He now says, I'm not just describing this. I'm not just watching it. I'm experiencing it, and I'm responding to it. And my response is indignation. It's anger. It's, God, how could you? Even though we knew this was coming, how could you? Which tells us some very important things. It tells us that, as we saw last week, Christian sorrow should be poured out before God. It's hard to get any more specific than verse 19. Pour out your hearts to God like water. Just pour it out. God, I'm suffering. The righteous indignation, the anger, the confusion, the hurt, the fear, just pour it out. Pour it out. That's what I'm doing. And this guy's a prophet, and this is in the Bible. For those of us I'd probably have to put myself in this camp, who are more inclined to respond to suffering with sort of a stoic faith in God. It's okay. I know God wins in the end. My faith is going to be shown by the fact that this pain and suffering doesn't make me fall into a puddle. This is a challenge for us. This is a challenge for me. Sometimes we need to fall into a puddle. Because you see, the problem is the puddle's there, and my stoicism is just stuffing it and denying it which isn't good for anybody. God says, pour out your heart. He's telling the people to pour their hearts out to the very God who is causing their suffering. Interesting. Pour out your hearts before God. Yes, we knew this was coming, and yet still there's an appropriate place for lament. And friends, it also tells us that it is good and right to identify with and be angry at pain and suffering. As a Christian philosopher, Neil Planting has so artfully put it in the title of one of his books, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin has destroyed the good world God created, and everything about suffering and sin and evil and wrong was never intended by God, and it is, at the most fundamental level, offensive that it even exists. So yes, it may be our fault. It is our fault as human beings. Nevertheless, it is offensive. It is wrong. It is good and right to identify with that offense, to not make peace with evil and with suffering. Well, that's just the way the world is. Some people suffer move on. It also tells us, friends, that not only is it good and right for us to identify with anger and pain and suffering, but to identify with other people in their pain itself. That's what this section of the poem does. The poet stops being the third person describer, and he like enters into it with them when he shifts to the first person voice. The poem leads us there, He's now a participant. He enters into it, and he experiences it, and he cries out. To identify with other people in their pain is a powerful act of love. To acknowledge the hardness of it, even if it's their own fault. And for some of us, that's a real conviction, because we can be pretty good at being judgmental when we want to, can't we? That's another American trait, by the way. 
American Christians should be better at that than others, but we're often not. Well, sorry that person's suffering, but they made their own bed. They're lying in it, you know. Sorry he's homeless, but maybe he didn't try hard enough to get a job. I'm, I'm sorry he lost his job, but you know, he's the one that got himself addicted to that substance. I'm sorry that marriage fell apart, but, but they're the one that got themselves addicted to pornography that ruined the whole thing, or they're the ones that cheated on their spouse. Or, you know, what, there's this part of us that can well up sometimes and like, yeah, I can't have too much compassion on you because it's your own fault. Many of the other lament poems in this book acknowledge that Israel is being justly punished by God, but this one doesn't, other than referring to the fact that God had already said he, we knew this was coming. The focus of this one isn't on whose fault it is. The focus of this one is just on identifying with the pain. Even in pain, to acknowledge how difficult it is. By the way, it's often not people's direct fault that they're in pain. Even in this book, not every Israelite sinned to the same degree as every other Israelite, and yet all of them dealt with the national judgment. So they weren't all equally guilty, but they all bore the brunt of the judgment. And this poem leads the poet to identify with them. Identifying with somebody's pain means we have to be willing to feel a little bit bad for a bit. It means we're going to have to maybe deny our cultural love affair with happy feelings. I just don't want to feel bad. I want to feel good as soon as possible. It's kind of an American thing. And to actually identify with somebody else's pain means I'm going to willingly step outside of the fact that I'm fairly comfortable and I'm fairly happy at the moment and enter into, at least in some measure, the difficulty of what this person is going through, to identify with it, to take a little bit of that on, to be physically and emotionally present with people in their pain, perhaps even willing to verbally acknowledge how hard it is. As one writer who's a sufferer of chronic pain and a Christian lady put it, I thought, well, she says, quote, all too often, the Christian community seeks to support those who are suffering by offering an encouragement and exhortation to hope without providing space for lament. And then she says, what I think is the key sentence, encouragement and hope in the absence of lament invalidate a sufferer's experience. That made me think, I think she's right. So bear with me while I say that again. Encouragement and hope in the absence of lament invalidates a sufferer's experience. It says you should be happy and hopeful always without saying we mourn with you because what you're experiencing isn't what you were made for. It's hard and it's painful, end quote. Oh yes, friends, we need to help one another as Christians strengthen weak arms that are having a hard time holding on to the life preserver of hope, that of the hope of heaven. Sometimes we need one another to fuel that hope so that we can get through hard times. Don't hear me say we should not exhort people to encouragement and to an eternal perspective. I often preach that theme and I believe it very strongly. It's good, it's right, it's biblical. It's just not the only part of the process. To go there too quickly either by our unwillingness to engage with people or our quick platitudes, sometimes just says, like, I'm not acknowledging the fact that where you're at right now is just hard, and it's probably not going to change anytime real soon. And sometimes it can be life-giving to simply identify with that. It is not dishonoring to God to say to another Christian, I don't know why God has ordained this for you. I feel terrible for what you're going through. Sorry. And just let that hang. Before you quote Romans 8, 28. God works everything for good. We need to get there, just not too quickly, okay? 
Entering into, identifying with, and experiencing someone else's pain is a powerful act of love, but it's one with which God himself is familiar. And that leads us to the third and final point this morning, the last couple of verses of this poem. In verses 20 to 22, as the poet is calling the people to lament, his voice merges with theirs so as to become indistinguishable. Look again at Lamentations chapter 20. After having said, pour out your hearts like water before the presence of the Lord, he then says, verse 20, look, O Lord, and see. Here's, here's the content of the lament. Here's what they're saying to God. Look and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Where are your children? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? God, people are suffering and starving and dying. There's even cannibalism going on. This is so wrong at so many levels. Should the priest and prophet be killed in the very sanctuary of the Lord, what's supposed to be the most holy place, and people are being murdered and slaughtered? God, this is terrible. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side, and on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived, those whom I held and raised my enemy destroyed. These final verses are a gigantic, Why, God? Yes, he acknowledged earlier we knew this was coming, but, but God, do you see what's happening? This is so offensive, it's hard to even explain or describe with words. He was witnessing it with his eyes, and his heart is saying, God, why? How could you let this happen to your chosen people? By saying that, he's not saying they're innocent. He's simply lamenting the difficulty and the pain and the suffering of what God was doing. These verses are a protest. It's a wounded people crying out indignantly at the God who has wounded them. And it's in the Bible for our instruction. Here's the interesting thing about it. It's, it's impossible to tell where the, where the poet's voice ends and the voice of the people begins. That's the way the poem is written, and that's deliberate on the part of the poet. Verse 19 is clearly the voice of the poet. He's telling the Israelites, the, city, the personified city of Jerusalem, pour out your heart like water before the presence of God. Lift up your hands to him. But verses 20 to 22 is the actual content of the lament. And it's actually impossible to tell. Is this still the poet speaking? Is he telling the city what they should say? Is he calling them to lament according to the script? Or has the city, in verse 20, started lamenting? Have they answered the call of verse 19, and now verses 20 to 22 are the voice of the people? Clearly, verse 21 is the voice of the people. In the dust of the streets lie the young and old, my young women and my young men. This is now, once again, the personified city speaking. But is it the poet telling the city what to say from the city's perspective, or has the city begun to speak? Answer, we don't know. Because the poem is designed to obscure who is speaking. It's the design of the poem to blend the two voices seamlessly, the voice of the one becoming the voice of the many, the solo poet standing in the place of an entire people, lamenting their plight as his own, experiencing their pain as his own, and receiving their judgment as his own. The book of Lamentations is never directly quoted in the New Testament but it is alluded to a couple of times. And one of them is the verse I told you to keep in mind earlier. 
verse 15, where it talks about how Jerusalem is having these enemies walk by and clap their hands and wag their heads as they mock at them. Verse 16, they hiss and they gnash their teeth. This passage is alluded to in Mark's gospel in the crucifixion narrative. Mark chapter 15 is where we'll end this morning. As Jesus is nailed to the cross between two criminals in Mark chapter 15, verse 29, it says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. A very clear allusion to lamentations and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Are you so great? Is this the Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty, the joy of the earth? Ha! This is the day we waited for. At last we have it. Jesus experienced exactly the same thing when he was bleeding and suffocating for your sin and my sin. Jesus was the true and greater Israel, as Tim Keller puts it, the true and greater Son of God, the solo poet who lamented in verse 34, a couple of verses down in Mark's gospel, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, don't mistake, that is not a factual question. Jesus was not confused or uninformed asking God for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. It's a lament as he expresses the raw anguish of having God the Father turn his back on him in rejection because he is now bearing the sins, not of himself, he didn't have sin, but he is now bearing the sins of the world. And he cries out in pain just as Jerusalem cried out in the book of Lamentations for the same reason. You see, when we think about one who's judging and who's judged, the question is, which side of the ledger is God on? And when you read Lamentations chapter 2, the answer is very serious. He's on the first side of the ledger. He is the judge. That's very clear. So the whole first half of the poem inescapably just drives that point home like an arrow into our hearts. But even in this poem, it contains a hint that this image of God as judge and his people as sufferers is not the full story. And it's not the final picture. This is why it's the second chapter, not the fifth. It's why Lamentations does not end the Bible. In the seamless blending of the single poet's voice with that of God's suffering people, we see a dim but very real foreshadowing of a Savior who will identify with his sinful and suffering people. And so, friends, as we conclude, as we conclude I would say, in the midst of pain, and suffering as a Christian. If you need to pour out your grief, and you probably do, whether you feel that or not, then, in the spirit of Lamentations 2.19, pour out your grief, your hurt, your confusion, your even anger to God. It's not without risk, but God says, do it. (laughs) Do it. Pour it out like water. This chapter of the Bible validates and legitimizes that. And by the way, don't just pour it out to other people. Pour it out to God in prayer. He invites it by putting this poem in his Bible. Like the poet in verses 11 and 19, be be raw and honest with God about what you or others are experiencing. Give voice to your offended anger that he would allow what is meant not to be. But at the end of the day, might I also ask you to consider 
in the midst of that or perhaps at the end of that, that God may identify with all of the experiences of your anger and your pain at evil and suffering far more than you or I ever dared believe he might because he knows what it is to suffer on behalf of God's people. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you very heavy because we've read a heavy part of scripture that deals with heavy topics. We've seen you as judge, just judge, you tell us. And we have to acknowledge that we are sinners. And so, Father God, that's, there's a heaviness to that. There is uh, an indignation and a, and a suffering that comes with pain. And yet, Father God, you have given voice to that pain for us. And I pray that you would help us to not only be a people as a church, as a community here at Harvest that that understands how to give voice to sorrow, ultimately pouring it out to you because we know you are the only one we have to turn to and you have invited even your own judgment on our pain or sometimes just our pain because of other people's sin to pour it out to you. But God, also to identify with one another as we together experience pain. Help us to be a people who weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, to lament with those who lament. And Father God, I pray that as we lament during this Lent season, looking ahead to the Good Friday where you hung on the cross and took our pain to bear our shame, I pray, Father God, that you would transform our hearts and that you would help us to know that there is a place for grief and pain There's a place where death dies and where sin is cured. And so while we don't want to rush too quickly there, Father God, we know we need to anchor ourselves there. And so Jesus, as we come now to you, the one who suffered in our place as the true and greater Lamentations poet, so that suffering and judgment would not have to write the final chapter of our story, I pray that you would receive our worship as a grateful people and that you would draw the hearts of men and women to you. Change us, God, where we need to be changed so that you would be glorified and we would have eternal life. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?